so this morning we have the pleasure of hearing from one of our members, Bart Moseman. Uh, Bart, in addition to being a, a proud uh, husband and father of four kids, is also the director of marketing at Langham, uh, which is an organization that seeks to equip um, Christians across the globe, uh, under-resourced Christians across the globe. Um, so uh, Bart shared a, an Advent journal or an Advent devotional with us a couple of months ago that was very popular. It went out before I could grab one. I, I don't know if I told you that, um, but I'm sure many of you were blessed by that and will be blessed uh, by your messages this morning. So uh, may I pray for you? Yeah, please. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would speak through your servant Bart, uh, that we might hear from him, that we might hear from you through him this morning. So Lord, may your word pierce our hearts. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. And lest you think that a marketing degree is what qualifies you to come up here and preach, uh, I don't have a marketing degree. Actually, before I was working with Langham, I was a pastor for 11 years here in the Twin Cities and did campus ministry for eight years before that. So that's more of my background than marketing. Um, but uh, it's good to have a chance to um, serve our new congregation. We've been here at Restoration since, um, well, it went this way. Late February of 2020, we said, we are going to go to Restoration through Lent and just commit for that. And then, uh, and then we'll see at Easter uh, you know, how we feel. And then I think it was the next week that everything shut down. So then we you know, were in and out through, through COVID and through quarantines and whatnot, and we're still here and grateful to be. It's been a, a good place for our family to be these last couple of years. So glad to come up and sort of be outed as somebody who has some experience with this sort of thing. Um, and I, my wife warned me that I maybe shouldn't say this, but I come from a tradition that kind of looks at preaching a little different, where you kind of take one text and then just dig deep in that text for the whole time. And Rick gave me three, so either I have to learn something new or this is going to take a long time. So you can let me know afterwards what you think. Carrie also said, don't tell that joke if you're going to be long. So... <laughs> which was wise on her part. This morning, um, as we look at these passages before us, um, I want you to think about Pinterest. I want you to think about Pinterest. Yes, that's P-I-N-T-E-R-E-S-T, Pinterest. It's a, an app or an online forum, sort of a, a virtual bulletin board, uh, if you will. And I want you to think about Pinterest because of two aspects of it. One, I want you to think about its concept, because the concept behind Pinterest is true. The idea is that we need a place to put or to pin things that are important and interesting to us. So we remember them, and so that we can find them when we need them. And the concept also sort of is that the more that we look at and remember things that are interesting and important to us, the more likely it is that those things will shape our lives the more likely it is that we'll try that shrimp taco recipe if we put it somewhere where we can find it when we want it. The more likely it is that we'll actually believe that self-esteem quote that we want to help us uh, have a better sense of ourselves as we go to work or whatever it is. So that makes sense, right? There's, there's something very biblical about that concept behind Pinterest. I think the Bible even talks about fixing our eyes on someone, uh, someplace it says that. So think about the concept of Pinterest, but also think about the content of Pinterest. What do you put on your board, either literally if you have Pinterest or figuratively if you have a real bulletin board, old school with thumbtacks, or if you have post-it notes that you put, what's, what do you put on your board? And what do we, Restoration, 
What are we putting on our board? What is interesting and important to us collectively that we want to keep accessible and before our eyes? It's a new year. We're in a new building. We're in year whatever it is of COVID, third year. But what is it that we need to keep pinned before our eyes of interest and importance to us? And I think this annual church season of Epiphany invites and encourages and even exhorts us to do just that, to consider what's on our Pinterest board. This, this season marks the revelation of Jesus as the light of the world, the savior of the nations, but also the church as his agency, his agents to do that work, to keep, uh, fulfill that mission in the world. So Epiphany sorts of moves us from the longings of Advent's waiting to the remembrances and celebrations of Christmas provisions to the actions of Epiphany's mission. That's kind of where we're at now, the actions. How then, given our waiting, given the provisions that have been made, how then shall we live? And so I hope this morning I can uh, be of help to us all in that endeavor by showing you these te- why these texts should be part of our collective Pinterest board. So first let's look at the Jesus that's presented to us by John in John chapter 2. And did you notice, when Rick read this, did you notice how important this incident is to the Apostle John? At the very end, in verse 11, he sort of says some things that are profound about it. And, and we can, many of us are familiar with this, even if you're not somebody who grew up in the church who knows the Bible, you've heard of water to wine. It was referenced in Ted Lasso, for goodness sake. So, um, you know, we're familiar this, for this, and we can easily sort of like, oh yeah, I know that story. But do you notice how important this is for John? Verse 11, he says, this is the first of his signs. So as John presents his gospel, he's saying this is the first effort of Jesus to make an impression. right? This is the first thing Jesus did to point us to who he is and what he came to do. So it's important. Pay attention. What's the first thing he wants us to see? John also says that in this activity, in this incident, Jesus manifested his glory. It says that he made known, he brought out in tangible, experiential ways how weighty he is. That's where the the word glory comes from, the Hebrew idea of weightiness, of significance. So in this incident, John says that Jesus made known how significant and how weighty he is for what he did here. And, And the third thing he says in verse 11 is he says that the disciples believed because of this. This is profound for John because John wrote his gospel so that people would believe, right? At the end of the gospel, he says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. And here in chapter 2, he says, because of this, the disciples believed. The whole point of him writing happened for the disciples because of this incident. This is big stuff, a big deal, says John. And what did Jesus do here? He, he made wine. <laughs> he, he turned water into wine. He made alcohol. Why does this incident bear the weight that John says it does? I think we miss it. I think we don't get it because we don't value enough or think that God values enough the significant things that Jesus has done in this incident. So let's, let's dig in a little bit. Let's dig in the details. Keeping in mind, John says this is a big deal. Okay. So the context is a wedding. What is a wedding? A wedding is a joyous communal celebration, right? It's, it's not just about the bride and groom. It's the family and it's the friends. It's the people that come together. I remember, I, you know, as a guy growing up, teenager, whatever, early college, I was like weddings, schmettings. You know, I'm not interested in that. 
And then friends started to get married. I was like, well, that's kind of interesting as my friends were getting married. And then I got married, and I couldn't believe how much it meant to me, the people that came to my wedding. I don't know if you've had that experience, if you've gotten married. Suddenly I realized this is a communal event, and it matters that it's a communal event. So that's what's happening here is it's this big celebration for a community. And Cana, where this takes place, is not far from Nazareth, where Jesus' family is from. Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, is from Cana, okay? So Jesus' mom is invited. Jesus and the disciples are invited. And they, John mentions that separately, as if Mary's there, but also Jesus is there with his disciples. There's these two connections. So they knew the families. They're part of this community coming together to celebrate. This is personal for Jesus, the disciples, and Mary. And the problem at this wedding is that the wine runs out. And we can be like, okay, we'll just, you know, have juice, like, right? That'll work. <laughs> but the problem is that the wine runs out. Nobody died. Nobody was called out for being a big fat sinner. No paralytics or leopards or demon-possessed people or Roman soldiers jumped up when the minister said, is there anybody who has reason to give a reason why this shouldn't happen? None of those people got up and did anything, right? They just ran out of wine, but Jesus' mom knew how awful this is socially. It's embarrassing to the host family for this to happen. And it's divisive in a community for this to happen. It's a, it's a, a shameful lack of hospitality in a culture and a community that is built around hospitality. Huh. So Jesus' sign... His first sign in John, a sign that tells us about his significance, his weightiness, his glory, addresses a relational, communal problem. Not a moral problem, not a physical problem, not a theological or liturgical problem, a social problem. And then there's this interaction between Jesus and his mother in verses 3 and 4 that can kind of trouble us a little bit. But I think digging in here a little bit helps us understand the main idea. So let me say a couple things quickly about this. First, to, to get us off the thing that troubles us that shouldn't, why does he call her woman? Well, it's not disrespectful. It's formal, but it's not disrespectful. So don't, don't get stuck on that. It's, 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 I think we ought to take this as when, in another place in the Gospels, when people say to Jesus, your, your, mothers and your, brother, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you. And he kind of says, well, who are my mother and my brothers? It's those who do the will of my father. He's kind of, he's kind of prioritizing relationships here, right? And he's saying, he's saying, you know, right now, mother is not the most important thing in how you relate to me, okay? But it's respectful. It's not disrespectful. He just says, woman, let's think about what's going on here, okay? And the second thing he says is, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So we've got to hear that in two ways. The immediate context, right? What does this have to do with me? This is not my wedding. I'm not responsible for the hospitality here. But in saying this, it's important that we think. In saying this, the implication is that there will be a wedding for which Jesus is responsible for the hospitality, right? He's making sure we understand that this is not my time, but my time is coming. And then he actually, he actually um, well, he doesn't say it, but he references his hour. My hour has not yet come. That's the second thing we understand. We have to put this in the context, not just of the story, but of John's gospel. And in John's gospel, this word hour is very technical. When Jesus says, my hour, he's referring to, incident points, again, it's a sign, a sign points to a reality. This incident points to his purpose and the nature of what his hour will bring. In other words, the reaction John is after is, it's not his feast, 
But based on what he did here, just wait until his feast. That's the reaction that John wants us to have. And what did Jesus do here? What did he do? He rescued a community. He prolonged that community's joyous celebration of one of God's good gifts, marriage, by producing another of God's good gifts, fantastic wine. Yeah, like, it should make us chuckle because it makes us a little uncomfortable because we don't value that. So, so soak that, let that soak in a little bit and marvel just a bit at the wonder of Jesus and what that means. First of all, social cohesion, relational healing matters to God, matters to Jesus. It's weighty, it's significant, it's part of his glory. He saved the family from shame and a party from fizzling, and that matters It was a huge deal that he did that. And if you notice very subtly, you notice who got the credit for saving the party? The bridegroom did. Right? The servants know how this happened, but the master of the feast credits the bridegroom. It's like not only have you kept this party going, but you've brought the best stuff out last. There's just a little picture here of a standing in a community that comes from the work that Jesus does, not our own work. Just a little picture here of how we get to belong because of what Jesus has done. And that's what it brings that social cohesion, that relational connection. Social cohesion matters to Jesus. Is that part of how you see him? Is that a primary part of how you see him? Caring about those things, being a uniter of communities. Second thing that this tells us is celebration of the good matters. Celebration of the good, enjoyment of the good matters. He didn't just make wine. He made the best wine because they'd already served the good stuff, right? That's how it goes. And this was even better. Jesus didn't just like, well, give the cheap's fine. We'll keep the party going. No, he, he made great wine, remarkable wine. Is that part of how you see Jesus? Is that part of how you see God, a giver of good gifts and a delighter in choice fairs? That's who he is. It's part of his glory, his significance, his weightiness. Remember Genesis 2.9, when God is creating the world, and he creates this garden, and he, 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 put, he makes all sorts of plants grow out of it, and it's, he says that those plants are good for food, but what else? P- delight to the eyes. Please, he didn't have to do that. It's not just utilitarian. There's joy built into the world that God made. We're, we're supposed to. We get to enjoy and celebrate the good in the world that God made. We, you could say, you know that, that thing that goes around, this is why we can't have nice things, right? Like that's the, the joke, you know, for whatever reason. This is why we can't have nice things. What Jesus is telling us here is that we are meant to have nice things from him. He is the one who provides those things part of. We're meant to delight in the good gifts built into the world by our benevolent creator. Food that is beautiful and fantastic to taste. I, I got to be in a Zoom call with a guy in Tanzania as part of my job. We were interviewing him just to hear about his work uh, because he was a, a scholar that we helped to, to fund. He's doing amazing work with ethics in the country of Tanzania. But as we were sitting there talking, he, he said, you should come to Tanzania sometime and eat our fruit. And he reached from off camera and he pulled in like this, these beautiful pieces of fruit that grew in his town. And he sh- held them up for us on the camera. Like, I know you can't taste these, but look at how beautiful they are. You know, and I think that's such a great picture of delighting in the good things that God has given us in the world. That's part of who he is and part of what he wants 
for us. Good food, uh, drinks that delight the tongue and gladden the heart, Suns, sunrises and sunsets that marvel and don't get old. When I was in South Carolina in September, I got up and walked on the beach in the morning before dark, and as the sun came up, it was hilarious. All these people would come out from their resorts and their whatever they were staying, and as I was walking away from the sunrise back to where I was staying, everybody was, here's the beach, and everybody was like this, like cocked at a 45-degree angle, just standing and watching the sun come up. Three mornings in a row, just the beach was covered. And people would hustle out because they knew they were late, you know, with you know, blankets over their shoulders for the kids and whatever, just 45-degree angle. It was so funny to walk this way and see that. But that's part of who we are. We're made to delight in good things, the goodness of God's creation. Back to John 2 and this sign. The manifestations of Jesus' glory for, here for us to soak up. What a wonder is Jesus, giver of great gifts, healer of communities. Soak that up because... Because that's who we get to become as his people. That's who the church is to become, is a community that is a healer of social order, a, a restorer of relationships, and a giver of good gifts. And that's what the other two texts point us to, and we'll just look at those briefly. Isaiah and Paul are not talking about Jesus. They're talking about the people of God. So let's look at the people of God presented to us by Paul and Isaiah. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul emphasizes two things about the spirit-filled church. One is its unity. In two ways, he talks about the unity, that, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this confession that Jesus is Lord, this true belief in your heart that he is the one, that he is it, that unifies us by the Spirit, that brings us together. So we're unified by that, that allegiance to Jesus. But then also this whole thing talks about these gifts that were given, Right? And, and Paul's emphasis is to talk about the unity that is there despite the diversity of gifting and experience. Do you, do you hear that tension? He's, he's acknowledging the difference. Yeah, there's the, the gifts. You have this gift. You have this gift. This, this experience. He's acknowledging that. But he's working so hard to say in spite of that difference, we are united. It's the same God. It's the same spirit. It's the same Lord that gives these to us. And they are given to us for the same purpose. As the kids say these days, don't get it twisted. <laughs> Despite our great diversity as humans in all sorts of ways, community, unity, social cohesion, relational connectedness is essential to what God is doing. Jesus came to make a place for people to belong, and the church is that place. And we can't lose sight of that. And Paul's second emphasis in 1 Corinthians 12 is the purpose for that. Verse 7, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. And I think, I don't think I'm reading into Paul too much to say in light of John 2, that that promoting the common good is promoting the ability of all to flourish in God's world and to enjoy God's good gifts in God's world. That's part of what the church is here to do, to help, help people to have the ability to flourish, to be all that they can be, and to enjoy good relationships good agency, good food, good drink, good legal protections, good teaching from the word, all the good gifts of God's, that God has for us. That's the church is here to share those for the common good. And do you hear the echoes then of John 2 in here? Perpetuate and protect community, enable delight in God's good gifts. And Isaiah sums it up in his picture in one word, righteousness, Isaiah chapter 62 He's talking about the people of God, Zion and Jerusalem. He says, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning 
torch. Chapter 61 of Isaiah talks all about the Messiah. If you go back and look, you can see the beginning, some of the familiar words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor and so on and so on. 61 is all about the Messiah and what he would come to do. And then 62 carries on. I can't, I can't stop talking because the implications for the church of this, if the Messiah is going to come and reveal righteousness, that righteousness is going to be lived out and shine in the church as well. And that idea of righteousness is everything the way it's supposed to be. Community, enjoying God's good gifts in the world that he has made. We tend to hear righteousness in a a moral sense, sort of checking the boxes, like keeping the law. And that's not not part of it, but it's not the whole part of it. How the Bible tends to refer to it is holistic goodness. Things are functioning as they should be there, in that place, in that community. There's relational unity, and there is flourishing. So John's first sign pointing us to Jesus, is relational in focus, right? Save the community, give them good gifts to enjoy. The church's role, empowered by the Spirit, is relational in focus. Unified, righteously living out the way things are made to be for the common good. Because of who Jesus is, that is the people that we are and are to be becoming. There's a lot to think about in terms of what that means, and I won't say everything, can't say everything. It's for us to work out together going forward. But one thing it means is this, and Rick did not tell me to say this. Table groups are a great idea. Nobody's laughing at that. Good, that means you're taking me seriously. That's good. But table groups are a great idea. What are table groups? Social cohesion, relational healing in the context of good food and drink. Right? That's what we're trying to do there, maybe even good wine. Yeah, they are not easy, but they are trying to embody, based on what we see here in these texts, something true, something good and right and true, something Jesus-like. They are a pursuit of what he came to restore. That's not the end-all, be-all of what we're to be as a church, but that's a great starting place, is to begin to work that out in that small community that we have an opportunity to do. Maybe that's worth talking about at your next table group gathering. What are the barriers that we run into for this social cohesion and this sharing of the good gifts? And how do we pursue these values of our Savior together? And then as a whole church, this needs to be our ongoing conversation. As we engage this surrounding community, we want and get to be a part of these values of Jesus. Right? How do we do that? How do we be a righteousness that goes forth as brightness in this community? What does social cohesion, relational healing look like in our day and age? Is there a need for social healing, relational cohesion? In our cities, in our day and age, yeah, what does that look like? How do we help be a part of that? We get to care about that. We get to because we're Jesus' people. What does a celebration of the good look like in our day and age? How do we model and promote the common goods of marriage, of feasting with good food and drink, of work, not as identity or a means to wealth, but as part of our agency and our dignity in God's world? The, good, the common good of friendship, how do, we, how do we promote these? How do we model these? And how do we be a part of giving these common goods, making these common goods available, accessible to the people around us? Can we embody and articulate the good that we're for compellingly and worry less about verbalizing the bad that we're against judgmentally? I think that's a a real point that the church is at in America, in the world, really, but in America, too. Um, Can we? I I will. Thanks, Larry. (laughs) Can we embody and articulate the good that we're for compellingly 
and worry less about verbalizing the bad that we're against judgmentally? And the answer to that question is actually yes, because the Spirit is among us. That's what Paul says. The Spirit is among us, empowering us, gifting us to do just that, to live out of unity for the common good. So back to 1 Corinthians 12, Isaiah 62, these descriptions of the, the, the people of God's glory, they're here for us to see and to soak up. What a wonder you are, people of God. What a wonder Jesus is, and what a wonder you are, people of God, as you are a place of social cohesion and a place of delighting in, enjoying, and sharing the common goods of God's, of God's world. I don't know if any of you guys do puzzles. That tends to be a thing that we do uh, over the holidays when we have some time together, something that you can sit around and do, uh, put a Christmas movie on, whatever. I'm a terrible person to do puzzles with because I always want to be holding the box. Not the one with the pieces in it, but the one that, that the picture's on, right? Like, it's, for me, as soon as I put the box down, I forget. I just forget what I'm trying to do with this puzzle. I can't find a single piece. So if, if nobody else is asking for it, I am holding the box and looking at the picture. But that happens here, too, in the church, that we, we look away from Jesus, from his picture of who he is and what his people are and what we are to be, and we easily forget what we're trying to do here. Right? We can easily forget what we're trying to do here. Suddenly, the color of the carpet or the time of the service or that one song we don't prefer or masks or whatever it is seems so important to our lives together because we've lost sight of the picture that Jesus has given us of what we're trying to build, and we start forcing pieces into the puzzle that don't belong. So I commend to you that we together should look often at John 2 and at 1 Corinthians 12 and Isaiah 62. Look often at them and soak in the wonder of who Jesus is and the wonder of who we are as his people. And let's pin that on our Pinterest boards. Let me pray for us if I can. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not clueless that we're not trying to figure this out on our own, but that you have left us a testimony inspired by you, Holy Spirit. Uh, We thank you for that, and we pray, Spirit, that we would walk with you and that you would do in us what you intend to do, that your word would uh, bring about good fruit uh, in the power that you bring to us and the purposes that you intend to manifest in us. For our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.